Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying safe and I hope you're staying happy and healthy. My guest today joins me via Zoom from his home in Massachusetts. Dan Lyon has spent much of his recent career following jobs as a senior editor at Forbes magazine and a writer at Newsweek, examining something that is on people's minds these days. That's work. Drawing on his experience at his first job outside of a newsroom at the HubSpot startup, he has looked at how and why we work from all angles. He's been called the Mark Twain of Silicon Valley and Jonathan Swift for our own digital age. No less an expert than money man Dave Ramsey of DaveRamsey.com says Lyons is, quote, the expert on the culture of work and how it's changing business and lives. Today, we take the conversation he started with his last book, Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us, and recontextualize it for the pandemic to talk about what work will look like in the coming months and years. This is Dan Lyons, and I started this interview, as I do all these Zoom interviews, by asking him where he is right now. I live in Arlington, Mass., which is just outside Boston, actually just outside Cambridge. Um, so you can imagine already it's, uh, yeah, everybody here is really, really uh, social distancing. Like, like Massachusetts, uh, went, we went into lockdown even before it was uh, required. I mean, people just stopped. And yeah, no, I mean, honestly, when I go out, uh, people are wearing masks, even in the, in the woods nearby, I go walking in the woods or uh, bike riding. Yeah, man, people have the masks on. We haven't seen... We haven't seen the scenes that you, uh, I don't know where they've been, but like where, or Florida, where, where 15 people went out drinking you know, the day the bars open and they all got COVID. It hasn't really happened here. There are some restaurants open where you can sit outside, but, um, and I don't know how careful people are being there, but, um, but yeah, for the most part, people here are really, really uh, on it. My Canadians are usually a lot smarter about these things, about most things, don't you think? I, I, I have found that because I spent a lot of time in Canada giving talks and stuff over the years. And uh, yeah, I, that, that, that is what I would imagine. And, um, and you know, what's happening in the States is pretty much kind of what you would expect in the States too, <laughs> sadly, you know, but no, but here, yeah, people are, people are being good. I think for that exact reason, like, let's just, you know, I found, you know, we've been getting out and it's been a fail, like a somewhat small price to pay. I miss, going out to restaurants, but otherwise, uh, you know, we've been able to go out and hang out in a little park by a pond. We just, everybody was spaced apart, you know, we've had a little picnic. My daughter and I now have picnics once a week. We just go out and have a picnic lunch, which is, it's nice, you know? Yeah, it's- uh, Well, I think we're rediscovering some of those things because you and your daughter would not be having picnics once a week Right. If this was a regular time. And so with all the, the bad stuff that's happening, um, I do think that people are, are finding different ways of coping. And, and I think some of them uh, hopefully will stay with us afterwards, like the picnic. Now, it's unlikely you'll do it once a week, but it's a really lovely thing to do right now. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And it's, it's lousy, obviously, but like, it is amazing how much you – appreciate some little things just being outdoors you know when uh when it's been taken away i mean uh luckily now you know we're in summer so it's it's easier if this were happening in the middle of winter and you couldn't go sit outside that would be would be even worse but yeah i i uh but i agree yeah it's been uh ah, it's it's uh, it's 
it's been different, but uh, yeah, I don't want to do it again. No, I do not want to do it again. Now, how do you pass your time? You're a writer. Are you writing more than, than usual? Or what are you doing to, to tick off those, the minutes as they, they, they slowly move on the clock? Well, you know, luckily I had a project that I was, I had started last fall, around September, a book project. And uh, it was actually a, a ghostwriting project. I was going to ghost, I am ghosting a, pro, uh, a book for, for someone, and, um, which I had never done before. And I kind of delayed my own next book to do this one. because It actually was one I really wanted to do. I really liked the, the, the author. And um, so, you know, I was heading into a winter wear and it was really short deadline kind of thing, a real crash project. Um, so I was already heading into a winter where I was going to hunker down and actually I was thinking by March, maybe it would be over. Right. Uh, it, it really wasn't over. It's just about over now. But, but basically I had a huge amount of work to do all through the quarantine. So that was, that was actually great. And um, the, the author is in California. So we weren't meeting in person anyway. We were having a, a zoom call every week, you know, after the initial reporting, which I had done, all last fall, I gathered lots of material, and a lot of it's on the phone. Uh, so no, I was hunkered down and had lots to do. And in fact, I still do now. And I'm I'm helping with some end of the project work, and then I'm also starting my own new book. So no, unfortunately, yeah, it's like having homework every day. I wake up and have lots to do. But uh, so yeah, I think. I, there is a funny thing, and there's a writer in the States who started this uh, once a week Zoom thing, like a support group, because it's actually hard to write, even though you have all this time. A lot of people are actually finding it hard to work, myself included. You're listening to my interview with Dan Lyons, author of Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. I, I did uh, at, at the very beginning of it all, and I think it's just that the, the uncertainty of everything was kind of weighing on me. And yeah. you know, we are so used to things having an endpoint. If something happens, well, you know, in two weeks, you know, this will be over. Or uh, if I'm not feeling well, if I get a cold in a week, it'll pass and I can move on from there. There is just so much uncertainty that it was, I mean, fogging my brain, literally. I couldn't write two sentences in a row. And I've still had trouble uh, really sitting down to write. I have a book I'm supposed to be working on right now, and it's just not coming. So. I'm doing these and I'm doing other things uh, to, to keep myself busy. But writing is not, uh, even though, you know, all those memes are going around that William Shakespeare wrote uh, King Lear in quarantine. And I think Newton's theory of uh, relative or um, Newton's theories came up during quarantine. Uh, I'm not having those strokes of genius. Yeah, me either. I wonder what it is. What is the fog aspect? Because I've had the same problem. And that's what we were talking about on this other, on this group. Um, I, I, maybe it's just the background fear of like one of these days I'm going to get sick and it's all going to be over anyway. So why, I don't know what it is. What, yeah, what is I mean, I think it's a mix. I think it's that. I think it's anxiety. I think, you know, uh, it, it is, it, it, there is so much going on. And if you, I mean, I, I see that you are active on Twitter. You, you keep up on Twitter and, 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 and comment on things. But I have found social media to be a little bit soul-destroying these days uh, just because there's so much going on uh, that it feels overwhelming to me. And maybe that's it for me. Maybe it just feels overwhelming, this entire thing, everything that's happening right now, that it is kind of 
um, made my mind work in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, social media has been my drug of choice, like Twitter. And it's terrible. It's terrible. I, 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 I'm embarrassed now that it's that noticeable because I don't even think about it, but I will pass time sitting on my phone, kind of watching TV. Like I've been binge watched the wire pretty much almost to the end of it now, you know, just finding things to do, but like, um, but yeah, I should stay off it. And, you know, and we have a special case, you know, in the States because, uh, you know, because of our president, uh, that has been, I mean, that spectacle for a while of the every day at five o'clock or so, President Demento and his, his, his circus comes on TV. And remember they were doing those like two hour press conferences. They were just unhinged. And I would watch those every day. I, I know a lot of people I know were like, no, I can't watch. And I was like, I can't not watch. Like I would turn it on, you know, sit there just every day going like this. So that I think that made the, we already had a great deal of day-to-day -day anxiety in the States. And then this on top of it, and then watching, you know, really incompetent people lie their way through it and bluff their way through it. It's just been Oh, and then those horrible counter protests. And then, you know, now, I mean, because, you know, the, the, the huge thing is Black Lives Matter and the, the death of George Floyd. And, and God, there have been like several weeks, several other, you know, innocent black people being killed every week, it seems like, since George Floyd, even, you know, then during those protests and the, the, uh, the National Guard in the streets. I mean, it's, uh, it is, I can't even remember any time in the States like this in terms of, yeah, okay, it's hard to work, but like the world around you is kind of burning down. Um, you know, it's like work almost becomes the last thing you, you need to worry about at this point. But yeah, so it's been, it's been, uh, it's a really difficult and, and terrible time in this in the states now. I mean, maybe maybe a necessary one. Maybe it's a necessary uh, 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 like a reset. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, if you look back on every time there's been progress, there's also been this a lot of upheaval and pain and and uh, conflict, and then there's this lurch toward progress. So maybe we're in another kind of lurch toward some kind of progress, but um, it often seems very hopeless here. The situation with the, uh, the entire government seems to have been corrupted and, and, um, and destroyed. Like they're, they're incompetent. They're not just evil, but they're incompetent. That to me is the, the worst combination. You know, he's just, uh, some, someone mentioned this to me in business once. They were talking about like Microsoft for a while, Microsoft was always evil. I actually didn't think this. I always liked Microsoft, but but they were viewed as evil. But they were competent. They were they were the evil empire, but they knew what they were doing. As soon as they started to look like they didn't know what they were doing, that was really frightening. Like the 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 powerful but incompetent and you know evil force. So I feel like that's where we are now. It's, it's that they're. They're not good people, but they also don't know what they're doing. I start this segment by telling him about a joke that John Mulaney, a very funny comedian, does in his stand-up act. You can see it on a Netflix special called Kid Gorgeous at Radio City. And he says, I'm not a political comedian. I'm not interested in politics. Then he starts off by saying, but last November, the strangest thing happened. Here's how I try and look at it. And this is just me. 
This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in the hospital. And then he goes on to describe what that would mean, the chaos that it would bring for four or five side-splitting minutes. Here's how Dan Lyons reacted to that. Yeah, there is no, there's no playbook, right? Um, and, and they just stumble from one, you know, disaster to the next, to the next. And um, yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, that itself is really psychologically really overwhelming. I mean, you know, there's huge cases of, you know, I think psychologists have seen this in, ever since Trump was elected. Uh, that uh, there's a lot more people going to therapy, a lot more people depressed and, and anxious. So uh, yeah, the, the coronavirus on top of all that foundation is, is pretty bad. Now, you have written a great deal about work and the way that we work. Now, obviously, since we spoke last, a year or so ago, things have changed completely again. A lot of us are working from home. It seems uh, unlikely that we're all going to go back into an office environment. What's your take on that? Do you think that this will become one of those situations where banks and, and other institutions that take up big amounts of, of office space will just say, we don't need all this room. We don't need to pay rent on all of this. Let's just have half our workforce work from home. Do you think that will happen? And do you think that's a positive? Yeah, I, I think it will happen. I think it is happening. And I think it's a, it, it, a positive and a negative, right? I mean, depending on who's angry. So say banks, you mentioned banks. It's an interesting thing. Uh, part of the project I've been working on is looking at digital disruption. So for example, one reason we were able to do this, I don't think 20 years ago, quarantine would have worked nearly as well simply because of the technologies that have come along in the last 10 or 20 years. And I've often been a critic of how Silicon Valley uh, operates, but the, uh, the, the underlying tools have, like Zoom, this, this conversation. You wouldn't be doing this 20 years ago, yeah. And, um, and, and, and there were all sorts of fundamental technologies underneath Zoom that have evolved in the past 10, 20 years that make all these things possible on the top. So, yeah, I think... Oddly enough, for a lot of companies, they were sort of talking about digital transformation and trying to become more nimble and agile and speedy or whatever, uh, but they, they never could do it. And then when they were forced to, one CEO in Silicon Valley put it to me and said, there's been more digital transformation in the last two weeks than in the last 10 years. That was, and that was a while ago. They said, like, suddenly it was just everybody figured out, okay. And then, you know, uh, it was a crash project for most companies to sort of code this up. But it worked. But then, yeah, so I feel like then once you got it working, it's like, well, why didn't, why, why did we ever do the old way, you know? And banks are a great example. I, in, I've been writing about these two banks in the Netherlands. One is ING Bank, which is this, you know, uh, big, uh, you know, goes back to the 1700s, giant financial services company. And the other is this tiny startup called Bunk, B-U-N-Q. Yeah, we haven't heard of it because they only operate in Europe. But they're growing like crazy, and they're essentially a tech company that has a bank attached to it. And it's an app. You, you get it on your phone. For a long time, they didn't even have a website until finally the user said, we really, really want to use the web once in a while. I said, okay, we'll cut up a website. But the, the bank is just, it's here, man. This is, this is your bank, right? And, uh, and then you think, well, yeah, why, why do I have all of these branches you know like right now in the states we still use paper checks i have a paper check here 
but I have to go like, you know, I have to go someplace now and deposit this stupid thing. Like, why, why do I have to do that, right? So I think banking it, it is gonna undergo this wrenching change. Like now if I have to go to my bank, thank God I can use an ATM, but for certain things I still have to, because I'm in an old fashioned bank here, I have to go pull up in my car with my mask on and some woman you know, that I know from inside the bank comes out with a mask and gloves on and hands me this. It's, it's, so I think that kind of stuff, those sorts of inefficiencies that have just hung on like vestigial limbs or whatever, I think that's all gone. You're listening to my interview with Lab Rats author, Dan Lyons. Do you think though, that when you have these large office environments, I get it. You, you don't always need to be together all the time, but if you're having a brainstorm, it's not the same if we're doing it on Zoom that it is, if I could just say you, you and you in this office and let's just, let, let's get together and talk and we'll hash this out. So I, I wonder if the, the personal element of this is something that in six months or a year or two years from now that we'll say, man, I'm kind of missing it. There's a big social aspect of work. I don't know, you know, the, the, for, in the short term, the open office environment probably isn't gonna work because it's just a coronavirus petri dish but but yeah i i think there's this almost some sort of animal thing about us that that you know just being around people uh is important to us that we need it right and whether that's at work or shopping or wherever you know but yeah i think so yeah certain certain aspects of work um will have to go back and and be around people right and you you to collaborate you're right i think one thing that'll change is i think there's been a lot of uh flying time people have done in the, in the business world where they say, well, it's, they don't put it this way, but it's cheap enough and easy enough to just stick you on a plane and send you to San Francisco for the day and have you come back tomorrow or even the same day. Um, that will just, yeah, because they really want you to be there in the meeting. I mean, I, I have done that. I know other people have gone to these ridiculous flights just so that they can be there for a one hour meeting, stick their head in, almost like a sign of respect. Like if you really want this deal, you better be here in person. I think some of that will go away because it's, we've realized that's pointless, but yeah. Um, working together. It was like, I told you I was binge watching the wire. It'd be like, you know, imagine there's so many scenes where they're like McNulty Griggs in my office. Now I'm like, well, I mean, get on Zoom, you know, <laughs> like, like it just wouldn't work. Right. And yeah, there's certain, certain, um, even certain aspects of creativity. I think you kind of need to be, physically with someone. And I don't know why. I think it's hardwired into us. I mean, I, I think that going to see a movie or any kind of, of large scale entertainment is being part of a community. You know, when you're sitting in that audience and you are looking at something projected or musicians or actors or whatever on a, on a stage, you form a community with the strangers that are sitting in the dark watching it with you. And I think the same is true of an office situation of, you know, just our day-to-day -day lives. We all need to feel a part of something. And I know that, you know, in the last number of years, we have drifted into a situation where the individual seems to take precedence over community. But I think something like the pandemic brings us all together. Here's one thing, a germ that affects all of us. And it doesn't matter where you are in the world, it doesn't matter who you are or how rich you are, we are all in this together. And one of the things that I really loved about doing this web series that I'm doing 
is that I'm talking to people from all over the world. And, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Rob Bryden in London, Steve Earle in Tennessee, or you in Massachusetts, or any of the uh, Clark uh, Peters from Defied Bloods in, and The Wire. He also started The Wire. Uh, in, in London, he was the, uh, the reporter on The, on the Wire. You'd recognize him in a heartbeat to see him. Yeah, uh, but Lester Freeman, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh so, yes, yes. Oh, he. Where is he? He's in London. He's American, but he lives in London. Is that right? And since the 1970s, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, wherever these people are, what you realize is that everybody just wants the same stuff. They want their family to be safe. They want to be able to put food on the table. They want, we all want the same thing. So this era of the individual where my opinion is more important than anything else, I think was given a bit of a blow by this pandemic because I think that we've all realized, you know what, we are kind of uh, more of a, of a, like the Borg. We are a collective consciousness, whether we want to believe that or not. Yeah, and it, yeah, it varies by culture too. But but you know, to your point about work, I, I was just talking yesterday. This just occurred to me to a friend of mine who works in San Francisco. She's a single woman, and um, so for several months now she hasn't gone to the office, and she works at home. And but she said to me, "Look, I'm really getting depressed, and I might just bail out and go back to the Midwest and work with my at my family's home just to be around someone." And I said, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And she said, well, you know, for single people, it's been a real thing. It's, this, this depression has really hit us. It's simply because I think it's just we lack that animal thing of just going in and being around people and having lunch. And I don't know if it has anything to do with how productive you are or how the, how the work went. It's just a physical need to be around people. And so uh, and, and that hadn't occurred to me. But, yeah, if you are single and you, you've been really isolated and she's been really religious about it. I mean, yeah, you can go outside, but it, yeah, we need that, that, that work thing, you know, going in and you get lunch together. Someone so says, hey, we're going to go grab a bite. And there are those little things that, yeah, we, we need. I think culturally, though, it's also shown some differences. So for an example, in England, at one point they said, we're going to need volunteers to help with COVID response, help doctors and nurses. And I forget how many they asked for, but they had something like twice as many people signed up. Because the Brits, you know, the Brits are just like that. They're like, okay, there's an emergency, you know, let's go. Well, they, they all join forces. They have this sense. Like Dunkirk. I was thinking of Dunkirk. Yeah. Well, yeah. They, they, they just got canoes and little boats and things, and they went across the channel, you know. Yeah. Or, or even with, with, the, um, with the Battle of Britain, where they were just like, here, take a rifle. If you see a German, you know. But, you know, they were just like, yeah, we'll defend ourselves, you know. And Americans were kind of not like that. Americans were just like, oh, I don't think this is really happening. And, uh this is all crazy. I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm going to cough on people in the store. I mean, it's just, there's this sort of mental illness in America of individualism, right? That we, over, I agree with you. Overall, I think we do have a sense of the collective, but we, you saw that show up. There's this stark difference between those two cultures. Um, when we spoke the last time, we talked about the future of work. And I wonder if your ideas on the future of work a year ago would vary from your ideas today after all this is this a complete game changer uh i hope so i mean i i uh i mean a lot of what i was talking about uh in in lab rat say was was the the under the 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 the, the, the business model underneath 
work that was driving, say, a lot of the craziness I thought in Silicon Valley, sort of hyper-capitalism, this Milton Friedman just taken to absurd extremes. And, you know, I actually thought finally the stock market, this bubble would finally collapse, would have a real day of reckoning. And then from the ashes, people would start up, you know, creating companies that would treat employees well. Um, I don't know. I mean, you see Uber, which was, has always been lousy to employees, then just, you know, laid off a bunch of people on a Zoom call. <laughs> just got on Zoom and said, if you're on this call, you no longer have a job. I think, well, okay, so where's the humanity? I kind of hoped that some sort of sense of humanity or humanness would, would come back to work after all of this shared sacrifice. Um, and instead, you see, I mean, the stock market now is crazy. There'll be companies that... Um, I think it's it's social media is feeding this. Some people are making runs on a certain stock. They'll get together and say, "Tomorrow morning, we all go after this stock, and we're going to drive it up, you know, x several hundred percent, and then I guess get out." Right. So um, I still think the market is just teeter tottering in these crazy ways, and the Fed is just printing more money to kind of keep it alive. It's like this last dying gasp of this business model. And I guess it's going to take more than that to blow it all up. But it feels like it's right on the brink of finally blowing up. Um, and if and when that, like, I, I, I often thought that the, the business model in Silicon Valley won't change until people really get hurt. People really, the venture capitalists really need to feel some pain to rethink themselves. Um, I don't know, even now, if that has, has, if it's been enough, you know, if it's been enough to change that. Um, uh, God, I, 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 I wish it would, but, um, I mean, I th it's almost like there's two economies forming. There's the, the sort of local thing, the cooperative thing where people are forming companies and doing things in a, in a healthy, normal way. And then you still have this, uh, work, uh, an area of work that's driven more by Wall Street, that's driven more by investors than by employees. I mean, th to me, that's the central tension is employees versus investors and who matters more. And you have one camp that sort of is sort of, for example, supermarkets. Supermarkets are, are really focused on their employees and thank God, right? Because they've kept us alive during this. And I think that has, we've appreciated that. But um, there are other, other uh, companies or parts of the economy that are just driven by Wall Street. Well, one of the things that I would ask then about the future and moving forward is, you know, minimum wage is something that comes up, you know, every year or two, uh, someone wants to raise the minimum wage, one side or the other doesn't want the minimum wage to be raised. Uh, people won't be able to afford to pay a living wage. Uh, workers will have their hours cut back to uh, part-time hours. You know, all, all, the, all the arguments we've heard a hundred times about this. But what I'm finding here now is that all the people that, uh, that are making minimum wage, that people have been fighting against giving more money to, are the people that are keeping us alive, the people that are working yeah. in grocery stores, the nurses, the people that, that are frontline workers who deserve this money, who are wearing masks, potentially putting themselves at risk uh, to help us, are the people that you know, are often the ones that get pointed at and say, yeah, well, you, know, you make too much money already. It's, it's quite something. And I wonder if that will change. Yeah, at what point will they realize the power they have? Right, the power to, to change things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know. I I I I, I hope so. But I, I think that the there's a sort of sense of just greed that's just 
kind of overwhelming. Like I, I'm surprised people haven't put together this idea that you know we've had over the last two decades this this ever widening income inequality, getting getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger till the tiny percentage of the population has a lot more money. Like wages have gone down in real terms, and then the percent of wages that go to 99% of the workforce has gone down. Like even in that sense of the pie, the 1% has come in and grabbed more. Um, and then you look around and say, like, wow, why are we having all these riots? You know, why are people so angry? Like, yes, I, it was about George Floyd. And then it very quickly became, no, it wasn't just about George. It was about police brutality and, uh, and about the, the condition that, that African-Americans live in in the United States. Yes. But then it was about even something bigger. I think it was about, wait a minute, this is just a riot against the whole system that's oppressing all of us. And the people in power, I guess, don't maybe want to pretend they don't see the connection between that. That I mean, if you really wanted to fix things, and you know, it's not that it would fix everything, but a, a great starting point would just be to do a reset back to 1970 and how wealth is distributed across the economy. Start with that and then see if in general people are a little more happy. But you know, you, you, these militarized police states, the way our militarized police departments are in a sense created as a way to keep down, and th that's part of this big theft. Right, the, the big theft of wealth out of the out of the economy by this small number of people, and then they've built bigger and bigger and bigger police forces who become more and more aggressive to kind of keep down the people who are basically being screwed. And I don't know if the light bulb has gone off for most people yet that that's what's happened. Like you've been robbed. It's like trillions of dollars a year that you've been robbed, but it happened slowly over five decades. But to me, this is like the end result of five decades of Milton Friedman. Here we are. You know, it, it is interesting that if you had said that 10 or 15 years ago, people would have attached the words conspiracy theory, probably to what you just said. And today, it doesn't seem like much of a conspiracy theory and more like it might still be. A little <laughs> I, I, I'll admit it might be a little loony, but but no. Right. Yeah, you're right. Or they would have put the words Marxist or you're, you're even when Lab Rats came out, the Economist did a review and it was a generally good review. But the uh, um, the 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 headline they put out was something like nothing to lose but their laptops. You know, sort of like this is a Marxist screed against. Silicon Valley. And it's like, I, I don't know if it's Marxist. I think it's just common sense. You guys, you know, this is, if you step back, you can see what's happened. And I, I was giving a talk, God, about a year ago, this hedge fund in, in LA, really rich guys, they had all read my first book, Disrupted. And they were like, it was one of those great offers. We'll pay you. I forget the number. It was a huge amount of money. There was no, no even haggling. I was like, come to Grand Payment, four days, a really nice hotel, first class ticket for you and your wife. And uh, we've all read your book because I made it, the, the, the boss made it a uh, required reading. Give a talk for 40 minutes and we'll pay you all this money. And I was like, wow, uh, yes, yes, I'll definitely be there. And, but then I gave a talk and I was saying, you know, um, there was one guy quoted in Lab Rat saying, you know, the only way this ends, has ever ended in, in history has been with revolution. Right? Like this, with, this is, you know, this is what we're headed for. And I throw, threw up a, a few slides for them to say, and, you know, and there was billionaires. Says, you know, they're coming after billionaires. Like that's, you know, you already see AOC and Bernie Sanders saying it. Every billionaire is a policy mistake, right? Like, um, and, and, and at the time, about a year ago, there had been marches in the streets. Remember in Paris and stuff, they were burning stuff. I was like, look, this is coming, right? This is coming. It's coming for you. 
they didn't really want to hear that, but they had already paid me, so it was too late. But they wanted me to just tell jokes. But I mean, it was like, yeah, this is this has been boiling up. I think the coronavirus maybe blew up work mm-hmm. and 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 caused everybody to start rethinking. But um, uh, yeah, I, I still think we're sort of teetering right on the precipice of some some big you know calamity. I, I was really worried. I saw Warren Buffett's annual meeting this year, which also was by Zoom, you know, and and it was on the one hand you go, he kind of didn't say anything. But then you know you have to step back and go, wait a minute, he talked about the Great Depression and he talked about uh the Civil War in the United States. These two huge things that had, you know, and, and but then said, but we still came through, you know. And I my son and I watched it and we came I think why is he comparing right now to that? Is it that bad? And I thought, well, maybe it is. Maybe this is seismic as one of those things. Like it really changes everything about society and about not just work, but but the economy and how we deal with each other. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I've been sitting here thinking that, that we've been, we are in the middle of something historic. Yeah. I think so too. And, you know, as we wrap this up, I, I, I'll say that, for the first time in my life, I mean, I lived through Vietnam, but I was a kid. I don't remember. You know, I, I don't remember it. Uh, you know, the civil rights marches, all those sort of things that we read about in history books now. Um, I don't remember landing on the moon. I barely remember, only because my favorite uh, television show, Mister Dress Up, was canceled, so that they would show they would show the, the moon landing. So that's how you know that, that's the age that I'm talking here. But this is the first time, really that I think I'm living in a moment in history now that 30 or 40 years from now is going to make up the bulk of history books and people are gonna be able to point fingers back and draw straight lines between what's happening right now to what's happening then. And and it's a fascinating time to be here. It's unsettling, anxiety-ridden time, I guess, but it's a fascinating time to be alive and just see things that we take for granted crumbling away I, it's 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 a remarkable time yeah yeah right it'll change transportation everything yeah everything everything and yeah i mean it'll be over well i don't know what it'll be knock on wood in a year or two right it should be but um but yeah this is uh, i've been telling that to my kids i have teenage kids i'm saying you yeah, exactly what you said. 30, 40 years from now, you're going to remember this. Well, that and, and I think what I was saying earlier that, you know, that, that we feel or have been thinking that we are all connected somehow. We are all connected. We, we, if we can all get this disease, we've all got an equal shot at getting it, then we are all connected. And if you extrapolate from that, we're connected. So if we're connected by that, how else are we connected? Well, we're connected by our humanity and we're, and, and, you know, we move forward through that. And maybe it's sort of Pollyanna-ish of me, or maybe it's just very Canadian of me. I don't know. But that's that's kind of how I think about it. Well, you're right. I mean, even before this, we had people in New York once a week or every day would, you know, come to their windows and clap for the people in the yeah. hospital. So it yeah. was at least that sense of like, oh, my God, like, yeah, we as a species are up against this thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And But also then, yeah, there's a sense of like how we work, how we are compensated, how we're dealt with by the institutions around us. It's us, right? We have to, there is that commonality. Maybe maybe the pandemic did at a subconscious level make everybody aware of that, of their humanness, right? And of our frailty, our fragility, this tiny little, the invisible enemy, as as 
President Demento used to like to call like, you know, this little tiny thing that you can't see, they, like how vulnerable are we? And that, and the only way we've had to deal with it is like to band together, like to say, okay, we're all gonna wear masks. I mean, the whole concept of herd immunity is essentially that, right? We have to basically, that's the only way we beat it is by kind of locking arms. And then maybe there's a sense, yeah, well, if we can lock arms to beat a virus, or most of us, yeah, well, maybe we can change other things too. Maybe, God, you know, dude, you're really, Profound, man. This is like this is the best conversation I've had about this. This is I'm I'm walking. Well, I'm going to go talk to people all day about this. This is like really, yeah, it's really heavy, isn't it? That was Dan Lyons. Find out more about Dan or his books. Disrupted my misadventure in the startup bubble and lab rats. How Silicon Valley made work miserable for the rest of us at his website danlyons.io. Now, if you want to dig back just a little bit further, check out a fictional biography. Options, The Secret Life of Steve Jobs, a parody that Dan wrote under the pseudonym Fake Steve Jobs, or check out White Hat, Black Hat, the episode of HBO's Silicon Valley that he wrote. My thanks to Dan for spending some time with me today. Most of all, though, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay safe and happy, and we'll talk again soon.